0: As I said, this morning we're focusing on the church's leadership. This is part one of the church's leadership, and Lord willing, next week will be part two. I was going to try to cover pastors and deacons in one sermon, but then I thought better of it, and I thought, you know what? It's better to do elders one week and deacons the next. So this morning, we're focusing on the eldership of the church, the pastoral office of the church. Those two things are. Interchangeable, which I'm going to make the case for in a moment. But does it mean, since we're focusing on the eldership, or the pastors of the church this morning, that this sermon is only for elders, of which uh, in this uh, church here, we have only one local elder, that's me. Or does it mean that since we're focusing on eldership this morning, it's only relevant to myself, or maybe the men who aspire to be elders or pastors among us? No. As we examined in the sermon on membership a couple of weeks ago, the membership of the church is responsible ultimately under God for the health and the well-being and the trajectory of that church. And a large part of that responsibility is examining leaders and appointing qualified godly leaders and holding them accountable In the discharge of their office. The membership of the church is responsible even to remove leaders as necessary. And so a significant part of being a good church member is knowing what a good pastor is. Knowing what a good elder is. So that you can work together with the other members of the church to make sure that your church always has good pastors in so far as possible. And in my mind, the clearest passage in the Bible about what elders or pastors are and should do is Acts chapter 20, verses 17 to 38, which I just read for you. Before we look at that passage, though, let me make the case for what I just stated a moment ago, that elders and pastors are actually interchangeable terms. Elders, first of all, are not the oldest men in the congregation or in a particular locale. In 1 Timothy 4 and verse 12, Paul writes to Timothy, Don't let anyone despise you or look down on you for your youth. So obviously, Timothy the elder is a young man. Or young enough that people might be tempted to look down on him because of his youth. Historically in ancient Israel, the elders were the men who sat in the city gate to give counsel, even to make wise decisions, to negotiate perhaps with other towns or with businessmen who wished to ply their trade there or whatever on behalf of the city. They were the men that the, the town recognized as being among the Most competent, wisest, most reliable, most uh, of the best character to represent their town, to watch over their town, to shepherd their town. That's the function of elders in ancient Israel. The term is used in a similar connotation when we speak of elders of the church. The elders of the church are to be those who are to likewise shepherd the church. Those who are to be available for counsel. To make decisions on behalf of the church. To serve the church in the way that elders of a town cared for and served and shepherded a town in ancient Israel. Elders are those then who shepherd the church. And pastor is just another word for shepherd. We think of Ephesians chapter 4, 11 Where we read that Christ gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds or pastors. Different translations uh, choose one word or the other in English. But shepherds or pastors and teachers. It's the same word. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 2. In writing to the elders... In chapter 5 and verse 1, Peter enjoins them, the elders, in verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. The elders are to shepherd. The elders are to pastor. We see even in the passage before us today, in Acts chapter 20, in verse 28 in speaking to the elders of the church at Ephesus we see the elders designated as his hearers in Acts chapter 20 and verse 17 in verse 28 he says to the elders pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock what language is that? it's a metaphorical term For a flock of sheep, which is used throughout the scripture, right? You don't talk about a flock of people. Paul is not, most certainly not, speaking literally here in this section, or it would be the only instance I've ever heard of in the English language where you refer to to a flock of people. He's using the same analogy that's pressed throughout the scriptures of a flock of sheep, and therefore is addressing the elders of the church at Ephesus as shepherds, implicitly. Or pastors and so we typically use the term or title pastor instead of elder here at CRBC more often we use elder sometimes but we typically use the term pastor just simply because it's a little bit more intuitive if I say I'm an elder of such and such a church people don't necessarily know immediately what that means But if I say I'm a pastor of such and such a church, people recognize that. We also use that term intentionally, um, or we will use that term intentionally to refer to any other elders who may be added to our team, as we believe in the plurality of elders. We'll call them pastors as well. Also, to stress the point that they should be doing the same kinds of things that I'm doing, even if in lesser measure, because they're working vocationally outside the church, They are to be pastors no less than I am a pastor of the church. And so we sometimes use the language pastor in the place of elder, but they mean the same thing. Also, you see in Acts chapter 20, in writing to the pastors, or in writing to the elders, pardon me, or speaking to the elders, that not only are these elders to be pastors, as in verse 28, Paying attention to the flock. But it also says that the Holy Spirit has made these elders overseers. Or or bishops. Bishop, elder, overseer, pastor. These are all biblically synonymous terms. There aren't several different offices designated by these things. You see even in this passage that the elders are the overseers. And the overseers are the elders. And the elders are the pastors. And the pastors are the elders. And the pastors are the overseers. This is biblically the way it plays out. These are all the same group of men. The shepherds, the elders, the overseers. It's all the same guys that Paul is talking to in Acts chapter 20. So elder is the technical name for the office. Or overseer. Or bishop. And pastor is what those elders or overseers do. And in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is not above even calling them pastors or shepherds. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11. And so we have biblical warrant for calling these men who fill this office any of the above. Elder, overseer, pastor, bishop. So that's the identity of the elders. Those are the men that we're speaking about today as we consider the church's leadership. Call them what you want, but understand that if I go back and forth between elder, pastor, overseer at various points, I'm referring to the same group of men. Let's consider now from Acts chapter 20 the work of elders or pastors. We need to see first here that Paul, in recounting his example of how he labored among them, intends for his own work among them to be paradigmatic of the work that they themselves will do. The whole tenor of the passage points toward that. This is like a final charge. He is clearing his name, vindicating his name. You understand that I did it. Take advantage of you in any way. right? Verse 33, for example, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You know my hands ministered to my own necessities, etc., etc. Verse 26, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all. Part of what Paul's doing is he's vindicating himself in their eyes. But a large part of what he's doing is he's charging these men to do their work well. And he's saying, look at the way I did it. And he he comes then to this charge in verse 28. You then pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock, etc., etc. Paul intends his ministry among the Ephesian Christians to be paradigmatic or exemplary of the way that the Ephesian elders are going to continue the work in his absence. They... The elders of the Ephesian church are to minister to the Ephesian Christians like Paul did. That's the whole tenor of this passage. What do we see then about the type of man that elders should be? They should be humble. Look at verse 19. Serving the Lord with all humility. We've talked about this before, but as it's misunderstood, I'm going to repeat it over and over. Humility doesn't mean always assuming you're wrong. It doesn't mean always backing down and giving credence to the person who disagrees with you. It doesn't mean saying or thinking or acting like you know nothing and you have nothing to bring to the table. That's not humility. Humility is not thinking of yourself more highly than you ought, as Romans 13 enjoins us. And so sometimes humility stands there and says, I don't agree with you. You're wrong and here's why. And show them. You're not above the scriptures. You have no right to say that you're wrong when the Bible says you're right. Don't tell God he's wrong. By backing down off what he says. Sometimes humility means standing firm on the word of God. But it means not thinking of yourself more highly than you ought. Recognize that you are a servant. Verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility. Not serving yourself, serving the Lord. Jesus speaks in the Gospels of those who, having done everything that they ought to, should just say, I'm just an unprofitable servant, I've just done my duty. This is the way pastors should think about themselves. Have you preached at 300 churches on all the continents in every continent of the world? You're just an unprofitable servant who has done your duty. Has the Lord blessed you with a golden tongue to proclaim the excellencies of God and have you used that gift faithfully? Brother, you are just an unprofitable servant who has done your duty. I've told you that story before of Roman generals who would return from war And the way that the Roman Empire structured it is that a slave would ride in the chariot beside him and repeat over and over, in Latin of course, You are only a man. You are only a man. You are only a man. And as the crowds cheered, and as he rode in a stately chariot back into Rome as the conquering general, the slave would whisper in his ear, You are only a man. Serve the Lord with humility. This is the job of a pastor. This is the type of men that you need pastoring your churches. Men who will serve the Lord with humility. Men who are ready to cry and to persevere. Look, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears. Verse 19. And with trials. You don't want a man who is unwilling to shed some tears. You don't want a man who is going to run at the first trial, the first sign of trouble. You want men who are ready to suffer. Look, look what the Holy Spirit testifies to Paul in verse 22. I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city. that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But still he goes. You know how many cities Paul went to? This verse tells us that he went there knowing. Knowing that imprisonment and affliction awaited him in each and every one of those cities. And yet he went. We need pastors, we need elders who are ready to shed some tears in the work. Who are ready to labor through trials, through afflictions. Through imprisonment even. To get the work done. Men who are ready even to die. Look at verse 24. I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Pastors need to be ready to stand in the pulpit and preach the gospel if it kills them. To stand up on Mars Hill and preach if it kills them. To preach to a crowd of rioters if it kills them. I don't count my life as any value. Just let me fulfill my ministry. Men who don't shrink back. Paul uses that phrase twice. In verse 20 and 27, I didn't shrink back, he says. And the implication is that the Ephesian elders ought not to shrink back either. We need men who are ready to face the fierce wolves that Paul says will trouble the church. In verse 29, after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. Calvin famously said that pastors need to have two voices. One to be used when fending off wolves, and one to be used when gathering sheep. You need pastors who know how to speak tenderly to sheep, who know how to look you in the eyes and tell you, I love you. You need pastors who who are able to be compassionate and caring. Pastors who are able to weep, as it says, with tears. But you need pastors who are able to be tough. You need pastors who are able to be strong. You need pastors who are able to stand up to the wolves. You need pastors who are willing to say to somebody, sit down and be quiet. And don't mention that nonsense in this church again. You need pastors who are able to name names when necessary. You need pastors who are able to go toe-to-toe when necessary. So that the purity of the gospel is preserved. So that the sheep are fed sheep food. And not rat poison. You need men who have two voices. Those who can speak tenderly to the sheep. And those who can fend off the wolves. you need men that are hard-working... Look at verse 31. Paul says, For three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Again, with tears. This same guy who's combating the wolves is admonishing everyone of the sheep with tears. You need pastors who cry over the troubles of Zion on their knees in their prayer closet. You need pastors who work hard to address the troubles of Zion insofar as they're able, night and day. You remember that Paul was not a married man. Pastors who have wives and who have children need to attend properly to them, even as they need to attend properly to the church. But you need pastors that are not all about me time. Pastors who are ready to put in a day's work and then put in an evening's work on top of it to care for the flock of God you need pastors who are willing to work hard even in the marketplace 34 and 35 you yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who are with me in all these things I have shown you that by working hard in this way etc etc Paul worked bivocationally this is the same Paul that wrote don't muzzle the ox while he treads out the grain and a worker's worth his wages. The same Paul who taught, you're not doing your pastors a favor when you pay them. You're actually just giving them their due. That same Paul forwent his right to payment and worked hard in order to provide for himself so that he could do the work. You need pastors who are willing and able to do such should the need arise, should the circumstance arise. You need pastors who are not there for the paycheck. Not for shameful gain, you understand, as it says elsewhere. A worker's worth is wages, and it's right, and it's good to pay your pastors and pay them properly. They earned their money. It's not a gift. They earned it. But you need pastors that are able to work hard inside and outside the church when necessary. As they care for the flock of God. And then as to the teaching, Paul says in verse 20 that he did not shrink declaring from the Ephesian Christians anything that was profitable. Anything that was profitable. In verse 27, he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pastors need to be those who preach the whole counsel of God. We don't shrink from declaring anything that is profitable. Parenting, marriage, work ethic, responsibility, whatever it may be, going through conflict with others, how to handle your money. The scripture teaches on many different subjects. And pastors need to not shrink back from preaching the whole counsel of God. Anything that's profitable. This whole book is to be preached. Its implications are to be worked out. Its applications are to be pressed upon the flock. Including difficult applications and uncomfortable applications. Pastors need to be prepared to have those awkward conversations. That in such and such a way, brother, in such and such a way, sister, your life is out of step with the Holy Scriptures. And this isn't a salvation issue. It's not a gospel issue. But it's part of the whole counsel of God. And so, listen. Let me teach you. Let me show you something from the Scriptures. Bring your life into order here. As well as there. Pastors need to not shrink back... From declaring everything... Anything that is profitable... The whole counsel of God. And yet pastors need to... Keep the main thing... The main thing. Look, even as Paul says that he... Preaches the whole counsel of God... Even as he says that he doesn't shrink from anything profitable... Look at how he sums up the content... Of his message in verse 21, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Or at the end of verse 24, how he sums up his message, testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. Even as he touches everything in this book, He keeps the main thing, the main thing. The gospel of the grace of God. Repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ is the key of the song within which all the other notes are played. It's the context in which everything happens, it's the frame of the picture in which each brush stroke is applied. So even as pastors speak to church members about parenting, or financial matters, or whatever else, the context within which that happens is the gospel context. The dominant note that's struck over and over and over again in the ministry of the pastors is Christ and Him crucified. We need pastors who aren't reductionistic. Who don't just step up and week after week just merely, that's an important word, merely tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. And tell you how you may be justified. We don't need pastors who merely do that. And so the aged saint comes and hears every week how he can know that he's going to heaven when he dies. And that's it. We don't need that. We don't need pastors who are reductionistic. But neither do we need pastors who leave that message behind. And who fail to tell you the old, old story of Jesus and his love. Because they're too busy talking about parenting. Or eight steps to a healthier marriage. Or how to invest your money better. Or steward it more for the kingdom. Or so on and so forth. You don't need pastors who come unmoored from the gospel. You need pastors who don't shrink from declaring anything that is profitable. Who teach you the whole counsel of God and press on you the whole counsel of God. But pastors who continuously circle back around over and over again to tell you that old, old story. Because it sounds so sweet. It grows more wonderful every time we hear it. Of Jesus and His love. You need pastors who say, redeeming love has been my theme. And shall be till I die. Even as they tell you what the Bible says about all those other things. Pastors who labor faithfully week in and week out, doing it all and doing it all in proportion with the center at the center. A bike wheel doesn't just need a hub and spokes, it needs a hub in the right place and spokes. It's a bicycle that a clown might use at a circus, which has its hub off-centered, and tiny little spokes on one side and long extended spokes on the other side to reach the outer circumference of the wheel. We don't need pastors riding circus bicycles. We need pastors who have things in proportion. And the method of the ministry... Look at verse 21. In public and from house to house. In public and from house to house. You need pastors who stand up and preach Sunday by Sunday. You need pastors who speak, whether at a conference, or whether by invitation, even at a uh, meeting of businessmen, or whatever the case may be, who take opportunities to publicly minister the Word of God. Who are capable and competent in such a setting to testify in public to these things. And you need pastors who go from house to house with these things. Pastors who know your name. Pastors who know the names of your children. Pastors who know what you're dealing with in your life. What you're struggling with. The challenges that you're going through. Pastors who are prepared to ask you about these things and follow up on these things. And pastors who are able and willing to speak the word of God to those very issues. Pastors who are going to testify house to house of repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. Brother, sister... Now that we're sitting here in your living room, let me speak to you about something that wouldn't be appropriate to speak to you about publicly. We need to have a little private conversation publicly and house to house. Repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. And that sometimes involves hard conversations. As I already mentioned, Paul speaks about shrinking back twice in verse 20 and verse 27. Seems that pastors might be tempted to shrink back. Elders might be tempted to shrink back. Whether in public, because of the tide of public opinion that now ebbs and then flows... Or they might be tempted to shrink back because it's sometimes awkward to sit down and have a private conversation. And put, put a finger on a specific sin issue. In some sense, it's easier to step up and preach to everybody's sin than it is to sit down with one brother and say, when you did this last Tuesday, it was sinful. right? Or to a sister, when you said such and such in this context last week, it was sinful. In some ways we might be tempted to shrink back from those private conversations and hide behind the pulpit. Ready to be, to play the man up here and call out the whole church's sin. Be known as a lion in the pulpit who's not afraid of anybody. But never mind, you hide yourself in your study all week. And you don't get out there to talk to anybody about repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of what that might mean to the individual's. That you preach to in your church. And then we need pastors who do all of this. With a care that's consistent with God's love. And all this talk about battling the wolves and confronting people about sin. Listen, pastors are not the kind of people that the sheep should be afraid of. They're not to be the kind of shepherds that people are afraid of. The pastors of the church should be the men in the church that the members would say, if anyone has to talk to me about my sin, I want it to be the pastors. Because they love us so much. They care about us so much. And they're so much like God in His care for the church. That if anyone has to talk to me about my sin, I want it to be the pastors. Look at verse 28. Paul charges the Ephesian elders... Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood. You see the care that God has for His church? That He obtained her with His own blood. Paul charges the Ephesian elders to remember that. That God obtained these beloved brothers and sisters. With his own blood. And so as they exercise their duties. As they testify in public. And from house to house. As they fight the wolves. To remember that God cares for these little lambs. And to conduct their affairs. And to discharge their duties. In such a manner that's consistent. With God's care. For his church. That the pastors would be those who are like God, willing to shed their own blood for the church of God. Willing to cry, willing to suffer, willing to persevere for the good of the church of God. May our elders be those kinds of men. Pastors working like this are a gift from God to His church. Do you understand that pastors like this are a new covenant blessing? They are part and parcel of New Covenant blessedness. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 4. Listen to this prophecy. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them. And they shall fear no more nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Have you ever thought about that? That good pastors are part of God's new covenant care for His church. He raises up men who will labor in these aforementioned ways for your good, to watch over your souls, as Hebrews 13 and 17 says. To name names, we could think of John MacArthur, who's been pastoring for 50 years in the same place. Grace Community Church in California. And man, I pray no scandal arises in these last years. But as as of today, as of right now, it appears that he has run his race with faithfulness. As of right now it appears that he has kept his life on the straight and narrow path. He's watched his life and his doctrine closely. And he's labored like I just described. For 50 years. When you read Jeremiah 23 in verse 4. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them. And they shall fear no more. Nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing declares the Lord. You realize men like John MacArthur are a fulfillment. Of that prophecy. In Arlington National Cemetery in Arlington, Virginia. There's a monument called the Tomb of. Of the unknown soldier. We should remember that even though there are high profile guys like John MacArthur, there are unknown soldiers, so to speak, laboring like MacArthur in small little churches all over the world. There are people from every tribe and language and people and nation, redeemed by the Lamb, who will be gathered around the throne, and you know what? There are pastors in every tribe and language and people and nation ministering to their churches in all the aforementioned ways unknown soldiers like those who died in battle which the U.S. has recognized with this monument in Arlington Cemetery there are unknown soldiers battling hard caring for the church of God all over the world in these ways May we have some unknown soldiers in this church. Men who may never attain to the stature of someone like MacArthur. Who are never known, but who serve no less faithfully. No less diligently, laboring in all the ways that I've just outlined to you. May it be amiss, after reviewing the high bar set for pastors in the scriptures, to ignore or downplay the failure... Of pastors, on some counts it sounds good what I just told you really good what if we had men like that pastoring us what if we had men like, pastor, like that pastoring us our whole life through and there never was any scandal and there never was any major issue that came up in the church and it just year after year and decade after decade was good like that But we've all seen where it hasn't been. We could recount stories that we've known of local pastors here in Barbados. It wouldn't be hard. But it's not just out there the way that we might be tempted to buy an easy narrative and rehearse an easy narrative to ourselves, like it's pastors in other traditions other denominations that do these things. And now that, now that we're here and there's a Reformed Baptist Church in Barbados, we don't have to worry about that because, you know, our theology's right. And so we don't really have to worry about these things anymore and so on and so forth, right? It's not just out there in other theological traditions, but Reformed pastors too Fail. And sometimes in grievous ways. I'm gonna call a couple names, not to be sensational, but just to be realistic. Because sometimes we don't hear realistically and properly about sin, real sin issues. Right? Or it's just the easy narrative and we call names like you know Benny Hinn or something. Right? But listen. Ian Campbell was a minister in the Free Church of Scotland which is a conservative, reformed denomination, Presbyterian. According to the scholarly Wikipedia, (laughs) all of this is true, though. Campbell wrote about 17 books on topics related to Christianity, including Bible studies and doctrinal teaching, mostly published through Christian-focused publications and Day One publications. He also contributed to Table Talk magazine published by Ligonier Ministries. At the time of his death, in addition to his ministerial role, he was vice chairman of the board of Edinburgh Theological Seminary, editor of the record, the monthly magazine of the Free Church of Scotland, and an associate editor of Foundations, a theological journey journal published by Affinity. He was also an adjunct professor of church history at Westminster Theological Seminary, helping to deliver their London-based courses. A couple of years ago he committed suicide after admitting to multiple affairs with women in his congregation. A little bit closer to home, here's an excerpt from a news source. Thomas Chantry, forty-seven, was a pastor at Christ Reform Baptist Church in Hales Corners in two thousand sixteen when charges were filed against him in Yavapai County, Arizona, where he worked as a clergyman for 16 years. After about four weeks of trial, a jury convicted Chantry of the two aggravated assault charges, but found him not guilty of one count of child molestation and could not reach a verdict on four other counts of child molestation. You understand? Five counts of child molestation were levied against him. He was found not guilty on one count, four counts uh, a mistrial was declared but he was found guilty of two aggravated assault charges a reformed Baptist pastor some pastors fail wickedly like this that was one of the most discouraging Those both of those two things were some of the most discouraging things that have really bothered me in the last couple of years and I'm working through with the Lord why it bothered me so much but those specifically those two things have really weighed heavy 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 on my heart over the last couple of years some pastors just fail really wickedly really badly not even close to what the scripture lays out every other pastor you understand still fails at times but thankfully more often less so than these two men that I mentioned. There are sins of omission where we fail to do what we should. We fail to be what we ought to. We fail to discharge our responsibilities as we should. As we ought to. And then we sin by commission. It's not like, well, we do all the right things, we just don't do them as well as we should or as diligently as we should. It's like sometimes we just do the wrong things. And we're not the kind of pastors We're not even the kind of Christians that we should be. We act in ways that are not only below our office, but below our calling as Christ's people. Pastors fail. We don't hit... We don't hit the bullseye, to say the least. We don't meet the standard. These... This truth is an uncomfortable truth, but it's, as I said, it would be a miss not to acknowledge it. Just send us out back into our Sunday afternoon, rah, rah. Let's, yeah, pastors should be like this. That's great. It would be a miss not to face this head on though. Pastors do fail. And they do struggle. They do sin. When pastors fail grievously and disqualifyingly, Their churches need to remove them from office. God forbid that I ever should, or any elders that we ever would ordain here at CRBC, fail in grievous, disqualifying ways. May it never be. But if we should, even if I should, think back on this day and fire me. Remove me from the office. And if any of our other pastors... Ever should, having ordained men to this work, to join me in it in the future, if they should ever fall into grieving, this grievous, disqualifying sin, we need to remove them from their office. Can we ever have a good pastor? Can we ever have good pastors? Is that a real possibility? Can I be a good pastor? Can I do it for my whole life? And never scandalize the name of Christ and bring shame upon Him or upon this church? Never tarnish the witness? The answer to those questions is yes. By God's grace, with God's help, yes. We can have good pastors. Yes, I can run the race faithfully and finish the course faithfully I'm going to fail I'm going to sin in some ways as I just mentioned you should know that at the outset where my sins are not disqualifying you should talk to me about them encourage me in repentance help me along be a fellow church member to me be a friend be a brother be a sister to me and help me press on and you should bear with me. Because I'm going to sin. That's going to happen. But by God's grace, I can be. Our future elders can be. Good pastors. And we can have a strong eldership. A godly eldership that bears some resemblance to the bullseye. Put forth in Acts chapter 20. Such that we could say with integrity. As Paul said with integrity. That those things were true of him. We could say with integrity that these things were true of us. Obviously even in Paul's case he didn't do these things perfectly because he was a sinner. But with God's help we can say that these things were true of us. As Paul said they were true of him. So may it be that we expect that. And we aim for that. We work together for that. We push for that. And may it never be that those described in a couple of verses earlier to the one I read from Jeremiah 23 apply to our pastors here at CRBC. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. May that never be. And by God's grace, it doesn't have to be. Or Ezekiel 34, 1-10. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds. Thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves... My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, with none to search or to seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, But the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand, and I will put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. By God's grace. That indictment never has to apply to our pastors here. With God's help, we may be good pastors. Myself and future pastors who may be ordained. By God's grace, we may have good pastors. If and when we fail, you may remove us from office. But what we just read is that God himself will set himself against us. Bless God for that. For His justice. For His care for His people. That He would judge unfaithful and wicked pastors. Take comfort in that. That God is shepherding you. Even as He sets Himself against bad pastors. Think about that. And bless God. That the passage that I just read you in Ezekiel 34. Doesn't stop there. But goes on to speak of God's own direct care. For his sheep. As we sang earlier in the service. The Lord is our shepherd. The Lord is our shepherd. Listen. I'll continue where I stopped reading in Ezekiel 34. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths. That they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God. Behold I. I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lot. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And do you realize that, back to Jeremiah 23, which has spoken of the bad shepherds that God will set himself against, which has promised new covenant pastors or elders like John MacArthur and the other unnamed soldiers, unknown soldiers. Do you realize that Jeremiah 23 and verse 5 speaks of another shepherd, another new covenant blessing? Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. That passage promises that not only will God set himself against bad shepherds, not only will God give his people good shepherds, good pastors. Good elders in the new covenant. But God himself has promised to be our shepherd. And he is our shepherd ultimately through Christ Jesus. Who's called in 1 Peter 5, which I've already alluded to. The chief shepherd. When the chief shepherd appears, we read, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. There are good under-shepherds. But bless God, there's more than that. There's a chief shepherd. And in some sense, that chief shepherd is one among many good shepherds. In the sense that there are actually just good pastors and good elders. But in another sense, that chief shepherd is the only good shepherd. We recall his words from John 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd. Not I am a good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Who lays down his life. For his sheep. You realize that. My ministry. The ministry of any future elders we may have here. The ministry of all elders. All pastors everywhere. And all gospel believing churches. Is subsidiary to the shepherding that Christ does for His people and over His people in spite of any bad shepherding that His people might receive at the hands of the under-shepherds. Christ cares for His people. Christ cares for His sheep. He laid down His life for His sheep. All we like sheep had gone astray. We had turned everyone to his own way. But our great shepherd interposed his precious blood. And our iniquity was laid on him. That's what it took for the good shepherd, the chief shepherd, to do what Ezekiel 34 says, and go look for his flock which had been scattered and bring them home. It took His being made under the law as Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says keeping it on our behalf in order that He might offer up to God the righteous life that we never did nor could have. It took Him hanging on that cross bearing the punishment that we deserved for our sin. It took that To bring us home. But those are the lengths to which the chief shepherd went to care for our souls. Those are the lengths to which the good shepherd went to care for his sheep. Listen then, Christian. Those are the lengths to which Christ went to pastor you. And he is risen. And He is reigning. And He has sent His Spirit. And He has given us, as we saw the church, as a gift to help us. And He gives us under-shepherds to help us. But never forget that Christ Himself shepherds you. And that's just a synonymous term for pastoring. Christ Himself pastors you. Those of us who are pastors then, or who aspire to be, must recognize the weighty responsibility that it is to be entrusted to care for the flock of God, which He purchased with His own blood. We must aspire to be like the pastors that Acts 20 talks about. And church members... You must aim to appoint men whom you are confident will care for you the way that Acts chapter 20 says that elders should care for a church. And you should remove from office elders who don't care for you that way. When we do have such men leading and serving us, caring for us like Acts chapter 20 says that they should, we should be thankful. These men are a blessing to the church. And they're not just a stroke of good fortune. They're an intentional blessing to the church. Come from the hand of Christ. The chief shepherd. Who gave gifts to man in ascending. As Ephesians 4 says. Who has given shepherds to the church. They are a new covenant gift to God's people. But we must remember that even the best of men are men at best. We must remember that, as the Roman general was reminded in his chariot, even the best of these men are only men. And so we should be thankful most of all, and confident most of all, not in the men who fill our pulpits week by week, Not in the men even who speak at our conferences and have high profiles and a proven track record of faithful ministry. We should be thankful most of all and confident most of all in that chief shepherd, the good shepherd, our Lord Jesus Christ, who never fails. We should appoint good shepherds among us and the shepherds among us should try to be good shepherds. And yet all of us, the shepherds included, should trust most in the good shepherd.